Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode two of The Wrestling Fanboy. I just want to start by thanking everyone who checked out last week's debut episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you listened to, and if you're back here for episode two, please, please, please take this time to rate and review and spread the word about this here show, because something I noticed uh, just about a day or so ago is that this show is unique for me. This is the first time that I'm starting a podcast essentially from scratch. Up until now, I've had the good fortune of being associated with podcasts that were building on something that was pre-existing. You know, my first show, for those of you who've been listening to me for the last, I don't know, seven years I've been doing this, I think now, uh, my first show was Lost Fanboys, and that was related to latinoreview.com. So people who were reading Latino Review and following our reporting and all that sort of stuff, they were all naturally encouraged to check out Latino Review's first ever official podcast. And then when I went solo with the Fanboy podcast, that was a spinoff of Lost Fanboys. That was me going solo, but basically continuing the mantle of what that show had been. So there was a built-in audience. And to this day, I'm still so grateful for the numbers that the debut of that show got. I know shows today that have been around for a couple of years now that didn't get the listenership I got on day one for the fanboy. And then when I launched the Revengers podcast, that was the official podcast for revengeofthefans.com. So again, it was a companion to another entity that had its own sort of built-in audience. But this show right here, The Wrestling Fanboy, is really just strictly a passion project. This is not related to another website. This isn't related to anything I'm known for reporting on or commenting on. This is literally just me taking something that I would bring up once a year on The Fanboy and suddenly deciding I'm going to make an entire podcast about it. So... I realize I'm going to be growing this thing and I'm going to be relying upon you, my listeners, to spread the word. So that's why if you're listening to this, uh, especially if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or you're listening to it on an iPhone or an iPad and you have an Apple ID, I would really love it and appreciate it if you went to the Apple Podcasts app and left me a five-star review and some kind words. And just like I used to do on The Fanboy, I will happily and gladly read the reviews out loud here on the show as a token of my appreciation for you uh, taking the time to do that for me. So once again, welcome to episode two. Thanks to all who enjoyed episode one and are now back for this for the next step of this. And uh, all right, let, let's get into it. Let's talk some wrestling. So one thing I wanted to talk about this week that... It's kind of, you know, I don't know if it bothers you, but it bothers me a little bit. And it's about the fact that I don't watch more wrestling than I do. Because <laughs> it is a little bit funny, I suppose, that I'm launching a wrestling podcast when I only really follow one company particularly closely. And I don't watch the main company in all of pro wrestling at all, really. I don't watch any WWE unless there's something very specific that's either going to happen or rumored to happen. And I just have to drop in just to see how they go about it and how the crowd responds to it. But in general, here I am launching a podcast at a time when I only watch one company. And I kind of feel like Maybe that makes my perspective on all of this a little skewed or a little narrow. And for those of you who are joining me on this journey, I want you to kind of understand why my fandom is the way it is. Because it wasn't always this way. On the contrary, I used to love WWF, WWE, whatever you want to call it. Vince McMahon's wrestling company was always my home company. You know, I like I mentioned last week... I got into all this because of Hulkamania and I continued into the mid nineties and I kind of, I mean, I dropped off a little bit there right around the time most people did because things got real stale, but it was still the company that I paid the most attention to. 
And then when things heated up during the Monday Night Wars, thanks to the NWO, thanks to Eric Bischoff and Nitro completely sort of revolutionizing the way professional wrestling was presented on primetime television. Yeah, that got me hooked and I started watching way more Nitro than Raw. But as soon as Raw figured things out, as soon as Vince McMahon came out, promised to make a change to the product to give fans a more modern and contemporary take, and as soon as they started with the entire Attitude Era on the backs of Degeneration X and Stone Cold Steve Austin and the rise of The Rock and, and the amazing, you know, Mick Foley's unbelievable run there where he came in as Mankind and within two years he had debuted two alternate personas and became the WWF World Heavyweight Champion, you know, on the backs of all of these monumental changes, I was immediately once again, rooting for WWF. Even though I was watching a ton of Nitro and was super invested on what was going on with the NWO and the rise of Goldberg and trying to see what other scandalous, controversial, crazy things Bischoff was going to pull out next, I was pulling for Vince McMahon to kick his ass. You know, I, I th you know, th there was basically a period there where, yes, I'm a fan of both, and Nitro was what really kick-started my, my deepest love of wrestling. But as soon as I saw that Vince had his back against the wall, and now he was going to listen to the fans, roll up his sleeves, and give us a product worthy of the late 90s, worthy of the audience that had grown up on Hulkamania, but was now tired of the same superhero formula. As soon as I saw Vince was willing to do that, he won my trust back in a big way, and I started rooting for them to pull out of this and to come out of this as the, the Ma and Pop family wrestling company that stood up to the billionaire Ted Turner Corporation and beat them at their own game. And when Vince won the war and bought WCW, I took it like, like, a, like it was a win for me. It felt like, yes, all right, the good guys won. You know, Vince McMahon got his ass handed to him there for a little while, but he cares about the fans. He's invested in this product and he, th this is my home and they won. The good guys won the war. So for a long time, you know, that basically means from like 88 through 2001, all the, all my formative years, mind you, I, that's from me being five to me being 19 or is 17. I, I'm not good at math. That's why I'm a podcaster. Uh, you know, for my formative years, WWE was my jam. But then a backslide began and I started noticing maybe Vince McMahon isn't the creative genius I thought he was. For me, the first big sign of that, the first major indication that maybe the product is in trouble now that WCW is gone, was the WCW invasion itself. The way that that all shaped up after years of fanboy fever dreams about what would happen if there was a supercard that presented WWF's top stars against WCW's top stars in a series of dream matches. After years of conversations around the lunch table with fellow geeks about, ooh, what would you do? Okay, you gotta have Stone Cold versus Goldberg. You gotta have uh, Undertaker versus Sting. You gotta do the Outsiders versus the New Age Outlaws. You gotta, you know, there were a lot of like natural matchups that came to mind when you were thinking about a dream invasion type of thing where the two companies are now going to go face to face, nose to nose in a battle for dominance. And what ended up happening was the WCW angle was a total disaster. And mind you, it's not 100% their fault, of course, because, and I wasn't following it that closely at the time to even acknowledge this, but you know, they couldn't get a lot of the bigger priced talent from WCW to be a part of that because they still had ironclad contracts from Time Warner that were going to see these guys collect millions of dollars for an extra year, year and a half, just sitting at home. 
without having to go on the road, without having to worry about putting risk and wear and tear on their bodies, without having to worry about a house show schedule and making your TVs and building up the pay-per-views and all that sort of stuff. These guys like Hogan and Nash and and uh, Hall, obviously, you know, Goldberg, a lot of the bigger names, they were collecting these huge checks just hanging out. So how the hell was WWF going to convince them to come be a part of this? So I understand that it was not necessarily Vince's fault that the WCW crossover didn't go the way that it could have, but I cannot help but think that there was another way to go about it. You know, maybe you wait until those other talents are are now free and in place, and you let the WCW thing kind of go quiet for a little bit while you work on a TV deal for it and start getting handshake deals with the top stars and you prepare to essentially now run WCW as a separate brand and then you can then build to that crossover. You can build to the supercar that's going to make you a bajillion dollars. But instead they half-assed it. And it's like that night, the night that the deal became official, they turned it into a wrestling angle with Shane McMahon showing up on Nitro. And this is a week before WrestleMania. There was already enough balls in the air. WrestleMania had already been sold. You didn't need to add any extra wrinkles to get people to want to purchase WrestleMania, but instead the entire WCW deal got dumbed down and simplified into a layer of the feud between Vince and Shane at the time and to add a little extra subtext to their upcoming match at WrestleMania, which was coming up six days after this announcement. People forget about that. And it's crazy to think that that happened the same week as arguably the biggest WrestleMania ever. I believe that was WrestleMania X7. And so they totally kind of dropped the ball on this WCW thing. They, they could and should have found a way to keep WCW alive and afloat in some form, or at least keep the respectability of the brand at a certain level before they attempted this invasion. And instead you had Shane with a scrub team of WCW guys. You know, the the best one of the bunch was Booker T, but then you had Buff Bagwell, and then they introduced DDP as a stalker who's coming after The Undertaker's wife. Like, why would you introduce DDP as something separate from the rest of the WCW brand? He's a former WCW world champion and one of their most popular stars. You build the WCW thing around him and Booker as the faces if you can't get Hall, Nash, and Hogan and Goldberg and them. But DDP was just poorly handled. And the Booker and the you know Booker T's attacks on McMahon and Stone Cold, that was all pretty cool. But ultimately, the WCW invasion and the the attempts at the hostile takeover and the eventual us versus them thing got so convoluted that they suddenly had to go and get ECW involved because now WCW didn't have the star power on its own to warrant this crossover war. So now they had to get every former ECW talent on the roster to now wave the ECW flag against a you know, with a WCW-ECW coalition against WWF. And the whole thing just got so silly. And it lost the thread. It lost the pulse of what any of us was dying to see. So for me, I'll never forget, that was the first time I began to really question whether or not Vince McMahon was the creative genius that we've always made him out to be. And then in the years to come, you know, they went, they went public somewhere in 2002 or 2003. So now they're on the stock market. They changed their name to World Wrestling Entertainment, which I already mentioned last week. That was a big blow to the uh, image of that company, if you ask me. And slowly but surely, the product started to become as stale as it had become in the early to mid-90s. Suddenly, the storylines got much more tame. 
much more corporately safe. You had Linda McMahon running for Congress. So now you can tell that Vince felt a pressure to make the product more family friendly and less edgy. And all of a sudden you had a, a, a gun shy company that at the first side of controversy, controversy would go running in the opposite direction. I'll never forget that night. I don't remember the year, but the, the night that Nexus invaded Raw and all these young bucks basically hopped the fence and interrupted the main event and beat the shit out of the guys in the ring. You had Daniel Bryan choking out Justin Roberts with his necktie. You had one of the guys looking like a straight-up murderer wearing a bandana covering the bottom half of his face. I forget his name now, but he looked like a killer. Like, the that scene at the end of Raw captured my imagination. It was like, whoa, whoa, like for the first time in what had felt like years. And I'm thinking this is somewhere around 05, 06, 07. I'll have to look it up. But for the first time since the company had gone public and become WWE and become more sanitized, here was an unpredictable segment. And I wanted to know who these guys are. I can't wait to tune in next week to find out their statement of intent, to find out who sent them, if someone sent them. What is this? You know, and, and, and it was handled so well. You know, the announcers sort of fell back. It just looked like chaos was taking place. And the best wrestling is when you can't tell if it's real or not. The best wrestling is when it gets you to sort of completely suspend your disbelief to the point where you're like, was this planned or not? You know, I know that like a lot of this is scripted, but this, this feels sort of real to me. Even if on some level you know it's all bullshit, the best wrestling segments are the ones that completely make you forget that this is a scripted sport. Those are the best segments. So I remember when Nexus showed up, I felt this glimmer of hope. Like, oh, whoa, whoa, all right, maybe they, they, maybe they see that the ratings are starting to go down and that there's some fans who are now converting into lapsed fans like myself, who I'm no longer watching SmackDown at this point. And Raw, now that it's three hours, is becoming harder and harder for me to want to watch. Maybe they're finally hearing that. And just like they did in 1997, they're going to go and they're going to revamp the product for us. But then the next day, Daniel Bryan got fired because he didn't get permission to choke Justin Roberts with the tie. And that's when I realized, oh no, this, this is not a step forward. This is going to be a hamstrung angle being handled by a company that's scared of its own shadow. Like, have we really gotten to this point where a heel cannot act like a heel? Listen, a villain should be allowed to do villainous things. Daniel Bryan was not a good guy at this point. The Nexus was supposed to be a new scary faction of hungry, angry, up-and-coming wrestlers who wanted to do away with the old guard and do so violently. And I don't know about you, but when I'm watching another type of TV show, and the villain in the TV show does something terrible, I don't clutch my pearls and freak out and think, oh, but what will the children? What about the impact on the children? This is so violent. I shouldn't be seeing a villain hurt an innocent person. No, this is a uniquely wrestling thing where for some reason, the folks who watch and monitor wrestling from the outside, not the fans, the fans get it, but the outside world, which Vince McMahon seems so preoccupied by, the outside world can't seem to wrap its head around that this is a scripted story where you have heroes and you have villains. And on some shows, you have villains murdering people, kidnapping people, raping people, doing all kinds of actual terrible things, and yet there aren't write-in campaigns that, hey, you can't let the villain do these things, because in every other type of scripted entertainment, somehow it's understood 
that villains do bad shit sometimes and that they're not the ones you're supposed to root for. You're supposed to root for the good guy who's going to stop that. That's going to be the character that has the characteristics that are supposedly, you know, worth embodying and worth trying to aspire towards. But now I'm watching a WWE product where if a villain does something mean on camera, they get fired. It's insane. I remember at the time thinking, oh, so this is it. This is, this really is the end of WWE for me. And so much of it came down to them firing Daniel Bryan. To me, that became like the ultimate example of how this product is not for me. If one of the most intriguing things that's happened in years leads to the firing of the talent involved, because they, yeah, they went off script. But remember, wrestling always went off script. Wrestling always, they never gave the wrestlers so much micromanaging. The best wrestling had always been, here's your finish, here are the bullet points for your promo, uh, make your times, and now go out there and do what you do. So Daniel Bryan, likely thinking that this is just going to add more heat, and I could always just apologize to Justin afterward, but damn it, this is wrestling, this is, this is staged combat, this is supposed to be visceral violence. He just went for it and he loses his job because of it. And then I remember a couple years after that, there was a thing where like Chris Jericho insulted a fan in the front row or did something with like the American flag where he sort of like defamed it in a way or something like that. And he got like fired or sent home or they scrapped his creative plans at the time for it. And it was just another example of like, my goodness. So we've, we've gotten to the place where the villains can't really be villains. And instead of standing up for their talent and releasing statements explaining, well, listen, these are the villains in our shows. These are not the heroes in our shows. They just let them go. Like what happened? I, I, I seem to remember Shawn Michaels sticking the Canadian flag up his nose in his feud against Bret Hart in 97. And somehow that was allowed. But now the entire environment, the entire script had been flipped to such a degree that that kind of stuff was considered offensive and egregious. So I'm telling you, my interest in WWE post-2002, 2003 started to just drop and drop and drop. And then what added to that was the number of times that I would see that the crowd is getting behind someone but it wasn't the someone that Vince wanted. So Vince would force the ones he wanted down our throats while pushing the ones we're screaming for lower and lower on the card. That's when I'm like, wait a minute. I thought the whole point of this company was it was by the people for the people. It was just the McMahon family. It's common people running a wrestling federation who know that we need to please our crowd. We need to please our fans because if our fans aren't happy, if our fans are communicating things to us that they're unhappy about, or we're not listening to them when they're championing a hero, we're going to lose them. But for some reason, Vince lost that at some point. At some point, Vince McMahon became convinced that he's the only one who could identify a star and whether or not they should be a face or a heel. It started happening over and over again, where I would see guys slowly start to rise in the fans of the crowd, where they're drowning out the promos of other wrestlers by chanting their favorite wrestlers' names, where they're actively booing people like John Cena who are being given these Superman pushes at a time when we're telling you, no, we want CM Punk to get this kind of push. There were so many examples of that, that as soon as I realized that my voice doesn't matter to the WWE anymore, I stopped giving them my money. I completely stopped giving them my money and at a certain point around 2010, I just stopped ordering any pay-per-views and I would just do once a year, just for old time's sake, I'll order WrestleMania, I'll invite some friends over and we'll see what's up. And I got lucky 
because in 2010, 11, 12, that's when Shawn Michaels had his amazing final arc with the, with the series of matches against The Undertaker. And something I didn't mention in episode one, but as you're getting to know me as a wrestling fan and as you are getting to know this show as a wrestling show, you should know who my number one all-time wrestler is. And that would be the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. That is my guy. To this day, Shawn Michaels just, I look at his matches, I think about the effect he had on me when I was younger, how much I love DX. Coincidentally, I'm wearing my Degeneration X t-shirt right now as I record this. Shawn Michaels is my guy. So I would say that from 2010 through 12, when he was having his final run leading up to his retirement against The Undertaker, and he also had the thing where he had retired Ric Flair right before that, to me, that was like the last bit of compelling WWE entertainment that I had. It was following Shawn's last run. And even then, I wasn't watching every Raw. I wasn't watching every SmackDown. I was just tuning in around WrestleMania season just to see what my boy Sean was up to. So that's why when CM Punk, after the pipe bomb and after, you know, his seeming meteoric rise, because I did pay attention to that, when it suddenly looked like McMahon is going to finally listen to the fans and they booked that crazy angle where Punk won the WWE title from John Cena in Chicago as his contract is expiring and he disappears into the crowd with the belt. And now this rebel who's already come out and said that he essentially hates the WWE and doesn't trust Vince McMahon. Now he's out in the wild posting pictures with the WWE title and he's not even under contract anymore. I mean, that was the storyline at the time. And I, I was hooked. I got sucked into that and I, it gave me a glimmer of hope once again that maybe there is hope yet. But the punk thing ultimately fizzled out and it got to the point where he got so burnt out working for this goddamn company that he packed his bags and he left. And so when punk left and with Sean recently retired, that was a wrap for me. But this is all to say that from about 1988, loosely now through 2013, WWE had always consistently been the main wrestling that I was watching. And I remember in 2010 giving TNA a shot because, you know, Hulk Hogan had shown up over there and they were basically rebooting the product. I remember having a watch party on the very first time they went head to head against Raw because it was like, ooh, is this the is this the start of a new Monday Night Wars? You know, and I'll I'll never forget that first that first time that Impact did that. I still remember a lot of the segments that happened. I remember the terrible Ultimate X match that started the show and concluded with a botch because Homicide couldn't pull himself up through the middle of that tiny hole at the top of the cage. And then that led to Jeff Hardy's awkward debut. Um you know, and needless to say, TNA did not hold my attention in 2010 when I gave them the chance to get my attention. So when Punk left, I had nowhere else to pay attention to. And so wrestling just completely faded away from me. And that's what made the events of 2018 and 2019 such a big deal. And this is why to this day, I'm an AEW guy who doesn't even watch WWE at all anymore. I've completely turned my back on that company from Greenwich, Connecticut, that at one point I was I wanted to work for. I remember because I used to drive past the headquarters from time to time because it's right off the highway. And I live in New York, so there'd be times I'd have to go into Connecticut. And there were plenty of times I would see that big black glass building with the WWE logo on it. And I would think one day I'm going to march in there with an application 
and I'm going to plead my case to Vince McMahon that I want to be on his creative team or I want to work in some way for this amazing company that's meant so much to me over the years. And now, for like seven years now, the company grosses me out. And AEW rose in its place because now was finally the dream. Now was the company that was by the fans for the fans. Here you had a place that was going to present wrestling in the old-fashioned way, where the wrestlers are given the creative liberty to do what they, what, do things the way they see fit, but they're given their core information. They're given their match finish, the match time. They're given the bullet points for their promos. But the guys are going out there and living the dream. They're going out there and, and honing their craft in front of the crowd and also bringing their own years of experience to the table. Because that was something that Punk had pointed out in the pipe bomb and in other interviews subsequently that was so frustrating about working there in WWE, which is you go around the country in these independent wrestling companies learning how to do this, learning how to manipulate a crowd, learning how to get them to boo you, how to get them to cheer you, how to get them to gasp, how to bring them up, how to slow them down. You go around the country learning all these tools of the trade. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And usually the dream is to get the WWE contract. You know, that is the end game. Every wrestler is just like every football player dreams of playing in the Super Bowl one day. Every wrestler wants to wrestle at WrestleMania one day. And not just at WrestleMania, but in the main event. And granted, that's, that is an unrealistic dream for most wrestlers. But in theory, that was the end game. If you're going to get into this sport, if you're going to be eating potatoes and canned tuna out of the backseat of your car on your way to the next high school gym 300 miles away, you're doing it because one day you want to get to the big show, to the big dance, and, sh and, and show the world what you can do. And have it acknowledged by Vince McMahon and have it, you know, that was the goal. But what had happened in these last 15 years is that wrestlers would now get, quote unquote, the dream. But once you get to the company, they want to strip you of everything that made you special. They want to give you a different name. They want to change your gimmick. They want to alter the moves you do. They want to put their words in your mouth. Now, all of a sudden, to work in your dream company, you have to sacrifice everything that you've been building on the indies for years now. To me, the frustration of that, because, you know, I tend to put myself in people's shoes. And for me, you know, I come from a performance background. I was an actor and I put myself in the shoes of these performers. I can't imagine training and training and doing show after show and honing all these skills and suddenly like getting that Marvel contract. Oh, we, we're going to cast you in a Marvel movie, but we want you to completely alter your look. We're going to shave your head. We're going to give you three sterile lines and we're going to direct you on exactly how to say them. I would be like, oh, I mean, listen, it's a, it's great to be cast in a Marvel movie, but this isn't really what I thought it was going to be. And it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bummer. It's like, it was this really the dream. This is what it was all for. You know, so I put myself in their shoes and I can't imagine what it would be like to be a wrestler and you've sacrificed your, your time with your family. You've sacrificed your body, mind, and soul to try to get this WWE contract. And then they sign you and just try to completely micromanage you to death and ultimately saddle you with a gimmick that's going to kill all your heat. I mean, you can look at recent examples. Look at Killer Cross. Look at what happened to Keith Lee when they brought him up to Raw. Look what's happening right now with Pete Dunne, or should I call him Butch? 
You know, they take these guys who are established known entities who have buzz around them and suddenly they got to put their stamp on it. They have to make it their own and they end up making an inferior version of it because the best gimmicks are extensions of actual people's personalities. You don't create the next superstar by putting lines and character choices in their mouth. You create the next superstar by finding someone who's got that charisma and you take them to take their own personality. And if they're typically backstage at a four, you tell them you go out there and you're going to turn that shit up to 11 and you're going to show these people who you are because people love authenticity. Wrestling fans love feeling like they can believe you. And it goes back to what I said a half hour ago. Now the best wrestling gets you to suspend your disbelief and just believe that what you're watching is organic and authentic. As soon as you have these wrestlers going out there, spitting out recycled lines that don't make sense, that, that when they're speaking words that would come out of the mouth of a 70-year-old who grew up in the 1950s, you realize this is all just for an audience of one. These poor guys are being forced to deliver a product that really only appeals to one old man who has lost his grip on what is actually entertaining anymore. So that's why I can't watch WWE anymore. They don't listen to the fans. And it's for an audience of one. And that one doesn't seem to know what the fuck's up anymore. And hasn't for a long time. And that's why I cut AEW all kinds of slack. Because they're a new company. This is a freshman effort with a new promoter, a new booker. And there's going to be growing pains. And there's going to be stuff they do that makes me want to bash my head against a wall because it's so amateur hour. And I might even get into some of that later on in this episode. But at least they listen to the fans. At least they let these guys who sacrifice their whole lives for this dream, they let these guys and girls go out there and follow their passion and spread their creative wings. And it may not be perfect, but to me, the product feels alive. Every episode of Dynamite and Rampage feels alive and spontaneous and unpredictable. It doesn't feel overproduced and over-rehearsed or like it's just trying to please one sad old man. It's a, it's a product that is actively trying to get thousands of people to scream, this is awesome, several times a show every week. That's the energy that bounces off the screen when I watch AEW. And so, as we move forward here on the Wrestling Fanboy, look, there will be times where I will drop in on WWE for, for select specific things. Specifically, this stuff going on right now with Cody Rhodes, that's going to make me want to see it. And it's funny, right? Because just last week, I was talking about how I'm so done with Cody if he goes over there. And I'm going to expand on that a little bit right now. But for better or worse, I am a fan of Cody Rhodes. And a part of me, even if it's just morbid curiosity, I want to tune in to that Raw after Mania just to see if the rumor's true that he shows up there. I want to see if they let him be himself. I want to see if he's the American nightmare Cody Rhodes, or if he's dashing Cody Rhodes again, or some other random scrub gimmick that Vince McMahon bestows upon him. Because a part of me feels like they can't do that. The whole reason to bring Cody Rhodes in now at this point is to capitalize on what he's become these last six years. So I'm very, very curious to see, are they going to do it again? Are they going to clip his wings? Are they going to ignore these last six years and act like he hasn't existed since he left WWE in 2016 and here's just Cody Rhodes again? Or are they going to some way acknowledge what he's done? And what he now means to wrestling. 
are, are his script, are his script, are his promos going to feel passionate and unscripted and off the cuff? Or are we about to hear Vince McMahon's old carny verbiage come out of Cody Rhodes' face? <laughs> I really want to find out how that goes. So there will be things as this podcast wears on where I'm sure I will occasionally comment on WWE-related things. But now you understand why I, it's hard for me to watch that company. And hopefully you don't mind that this here is a wrestling podcast that is by and large, largely going to ignore that there is a WWE. So, um, all right. So yeah, I, I've, I've gone into the Cody stuff and I figure I may as well continue down this path because some of you were a little surprised. I got some tweets and some messages from people going, you know, that's a little extreme. You know, how could you just completely turn your back on Cody Rhodes? If you're a real fan, you should want to follow him wherever he goes and whatever he does. And, you know, this must mean that AEW wasn't making him happy. So don't you want him to be happy and yada, yada, yada. And... Listen, I understand where you're coming from. And I understand that it comes off like I'm being a fickle fan if I turn my back on Cody Rhodes. But here's why it's such a hard pill for me to swallow. AEW is the dream. AEW is the revolution. For wrestling fans like myself who've waited years and years and years for a true competition, for a real company to show up and show Vince McMahon and the world that there is a better and more vibrant way to present professional wrestling and that there's a way to let the wrestlers do what they do while also creating a compelling wrestling product. AEW is the dream fulfilled and Cody was integral to launching that. And so much of what he would say in his promos and in his interviews, he would talk about how I want to be an executive vice president until I'm dead. You know, he would talk so much passion about AEW and what this means and, and how incredible it is to have built this place that now all these other guys want to come to. You know, he, he took part in building the opposition that now brought CM Punk out of retirement, that inspired guys like Adam Cole and, and Brian Danielson to just walk away from WWE offers and come over here to, 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 to ply their craft. He's spoken with such pride about ending the monopoly ending the corporate monopoly of wrestling and making professional wrestling hot again. That now for him to go to a place where they're not allowed to say professional wrestling, for him to go back to a place now where he's going to be a sports entertainer, for him to go back and essentially now help them. You know, if you want to view it like there's a competition, and yes, there may not be direct head-to-head -head competition, right? Because WWE no longer has a show on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, Rampage and SmackDown do not go head-to-head. -head. So even though they may not be having direct head-to-head -head competition, by lending his name and star power to WWE now, he's tipping the scales in the evil empire's favor. You are now taking sides against AEW. And maybe that sounds extreme, but to me it sounds, you know, to me it very much feels like a betrayal. What was the point of all of this talk of the revolution and, and really beating us all over the heads of the importance of there being a true number two and a true place for the wrestlers to go? a place where the wrestler's voice matters, a place where you can talk about professional wrestling on the mic and the crowd goes nuts for it, as opposed to being in a company where everyone seems to be trying their hardest to disassociate from wrestling, 
Kevin Dunn loves to basically act like, well, we're not professional wrestling. We're WWE. We're making movies. We're this, we're that. You know, he's going to work now for a company that is self-conscious of being a wrestling company. To me, I to, it's such a, a, a massive step back from everything he spent the last six years building and claiming to be all about. That that's why, to me, it's like, so you're just a hypocrite. You're just a hypocrite, and now you're going to help the Monopoly have a stronger foothold in the wrestling world. And now you're going to get AEW fans tuning into Raw just to watch you, so you're going to help their ratings. You're helping them, and you're hurting all elite wrestling. After all this, just because... The fans were booing you and you were too stubborn to turn heel. Because at the end of the day, that seems to be what a lot of this was about. Cody was really taken aback by the fans turning on him. And listen, I understand that there will be hurt feelings when something like that happens. And I understand that maybe in principle... He's like, listen, I helped build this house and the fans don't seem to love me anymore. And now guys who came to this house that I built are making more money than I am and are having greater influence than I am. So I understand his frustration and how his feelings must have been hurt. But it's still like, I, I just, to me, it, 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 it feels like such a betrayal. It feels like such a betrayal, but, but then, okay, me being me and my penchant for putting myself in other people's shoes or boots, as it were, in this case, you know, I've thought a little bit about Cody this week and tried to really think about what it's been like on his end. And look, I guess... I guess if the fandom of, a of AEW was breaking my heart, and I guess if the behind-the-scenes environment was no longer treating me like one of the key voices in the revolution, and now I feel like my voice is starting to go down, and suddenly Vince McMahon shows up and wants to give me a huge money contract and wants to bring me onto his television like a big-time returning star and is going to push me to the main event right away, I mean, I guess I would have a hard time turning that down too, if I'm being honest. You know, it's this is where it gets exhausting, trying to understand people and trying to see things all ways. Because as betrayed as I am, as a fan of his... I put myself in his shoes in these last couple of months. And if I'm having these contract negotiations with Tony Khan and he is not wanting to give me at least what the top guys are making and he is dead set on being the main creative voice and not really letting me write more of my own stuff anymore which by the way i think tony was totally in the right to do because cody cody has clearly sort of he lost the pulse too maybe him and vince have something in common you know because cody did kind of like lose the thread of of what his appeal was and how he was coming off to the fans that's why i thought the whole thing was a work for so long the whole i'm not gonna turn heel I all, you know, I really thought that was all just to make the eventual heel turn all the more shocking and all the more gratifying. But now it really seems like no, he just he was going to be John Cena and Roman Reigns all over again. He was just going to be the guy who goes out there expecting to get babyface reactions but gets terribly mixed to negative ones but still stays the same every week anyway. And if that's where Cody was going, 
which is what it seems like where he was going. I can totally understand Tony Khan going, all right, I need to have a little more creative oversight over your stuff because your stuff is starting to become a distraction on the shows. And I still go back to that Brandy segment, which is the last time we saw either of them on AEW programming. Because it's really notable. Because Cody's last promo, he was still trash-talking WWE. In the promo that he made uh, announcing the ladder match to unify the TNT championships against Sammy Guevara, in that very same promo... He mocked WWE for changing Walter's name to Gunther. So he was still very much an opposition guy as of his last promo. And then he goes out there and he has an unbelievable match with Sammy Guevara. And he put Sammy Guevara over. And that was, no doubt about it, an unbelievable match. But then we didn't see him again. We saw Brandy Rhodes and Brandy goes out there and it's all just super confusing. You are the wife of a face character and you're standing in the middle of the ring calling the city you're in a trash city. And they were chanting at her. And, and, and this is something that Brian Last has pointed out on, uh, on one of the Jim Cornette podcasts. Jim Cornette. Did I say Cornette? Uh, on one of the Jim Cornette podcasts, and I went back and watched, and he was totally right. You could see that her eyes got a little glassy. You could see that, like, she wasn't cool with the way the fans were treating her. And the fact that when Paige Van Zant came out, and remember, Paige is supposed to be the villain in the story. Brandy is, you know, the, the first lady of AEW, the wife of the beloved American nightmare Cody Rhodes. But when Paige Van Zant of American Top Team comes out, she got like a hero's reaction because everyone wanted to see Paige kick Brandy's ass because people are just, we're over Brandy and we're over this presentation of her and Cody. So you can tell that that really rattled her. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that was the last time we saw them. I think after that disastrous segment, Brandy Rhodes and Cody had a conversation about, I don't know what's going on anymore. These people hate us and they're cheering for all the new faces and treating us like we shouldn't even be there anymore. So maybe we shouldn't be there anymore. And I could see them just kind of being spiteful and going, screw it, call Vince and let's see if there's anything out there for us. And then Vince, listen, Vince, he may not be a creative genius anymore, but he's still a businessman. When's the last time he got to bring a returning star to the company that had gotten substantially bigger than they had before? Because that's something that Vince used to like to do. It's something that if you listen to Bruce Pritchard's podcasts, where Vince kind of always had the ideology of sometimes you got to leave the territory, go someplace, learn a new hold, and come back. And Vince always liked when guys would do that, when they would go out there and improve upon themselves. That's why, like, when Christian Cage left WWE and went to Impact and he raised his profile over there and he was no longer just second fiddle to Edge. No, in Impact, he became a world champion. And when he came back from Impact, guess what? Vince made Christian Cage a world champion on one of his brands. He never would have done that for Christian otherwise. Vince appreciates when guys go out there and can raise their own status and come back a bigger star than when we last saw them. And ever since there's been no real clear number two in the world of professional wrestling, the opportunity for Vince to do that has all but evaporated. Especially in these last 10 or 11 years where Impact really just faded into nothingness after the uh, failed Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff experiment. Impact, you know, TNA just completely just became a non-entity. So 
He hasn't had the ability to bring in a guy who was a world champion elsewhere and suddenly have him be in the main event. Cody is a very unique animal because of all that. So if they called Vince and said, hey, we're, you know, our deal has expired. And if you've got something for me, I'm all ears. I fully expect Vince McMahon, ever the salesman, ever the cunning and dashing performer that he is, uh, promoter that he is, I should say. I can imagine him filling Cody's head with all these great plans and how proud of him he is and how, oh, and I'm sure your father would be so proud of you for what you've done. Yeah, you walked out on me six years ago, but look what you've done. You know, this is great. And now you're going to come back home. And, you know, I'm sure that he spoke to Cody's ego and spoke to Cody's love of his father and made this return sound like the greatest thing since sliced bread. So if I'm in Cody's boots, I guess, I guess I take that offer. But I am not in Cody's boots. So to me, it still just feels like a huge stab in the back to all that you've spent these last three years building. But, and there is, is a but if this goes another way then i will admit i was wrong and i will eat my words because there is a version of all of this where cody can still come out of it a hero to guys like me because i've still got this in the back of my mind feeling like a lot of this was a mutual decision between Cody and Tony and part of a grander plan here, a grander arc that they have in mind. I could see a scenario where Cody speaks to Tony and says, look, right now it looks like the best thing for me to do is to just step away. The fans are clearly kind of over me. They've completely turned on Brandy. The landscape has gotten very crowded. You've brought in all of this talent. And by the way, I think he's a little upset at some of that because something else that he said in that final promo was this weird passive-aggressive thing about how, you know, I still seem to recall when we defeated Developmental he made some reference to that. He's referring to how Dynamite defeated NXT. And if you fill in the blanks there, he was making a comment about the fact that, hang on a second, we beat NXT and now we're bringing all these NXT black and gold wrestlers into our company and putting them in top spots. How does that make sense? You know, I think Cody feels that way. He's like, we beat NXT. So why now do we have Adam Cole and the Undisputed Era about to go after the world title? Instead of one of our homegrown guys going up against Paige, you have Adam Cole, who we beat, going into the main event. Oh, and you've got Keith Lee coming. Great. You've got, you know, he, he, you could run down the list of all the, you know, you got Swerve. You have Jake Atlas. You have, I mean, the, the, take your pick. There have been so many people from the NXT black and gold era who are now prominent fixtures on AEW programming that when you think back to what Cody said, or at least I do, when I think back to what Cody said that night, I swear it was a quasi dig at Tony Khan going, hey, we proved we are the bigger company. We won that Wednesday night war. So why are we having the guys who lost the Wednesday night war take the top spots here? Like I said, folks, I'm willing to uh, meet people halfway and try to look at things from their vantage point. So, you know, I haven't completely just turned my back on Cody here. I could see where he's coming from. But... Back to this hypothetical conversation that I could envision happening, okay? In this hypothetical conversation, I could see Cody having that feeling of, 
It's time to step away. And him and Tony having a sort of loose plan that is very much in line with what Brian Pillman and Eric Bischoff once worked out. Now, those of you who are not uh, wrestling historians, allow me to recap for you. At a certain point, Brian Pillman in the mid-90s while in WCW had crafted a new gimmick for himself. He was no longer flying Brian Pillman. He had started getting over as the loose cannon Brian Pillman. And he would do things that were seemingly unscripted, like grabbing the microphone in the middle of the match and saying, you know, uh, I'm going to lose this one for you, Booker man. And like announcing that there is a Booker. Like he, he started peeling back the curtain and breaking the fourth wall and doing things that made it seem like he was out for himself and he was not uh, on board with the rest of WCW's programming. And you kind of started getting this feeling that Brian Pillman was going rogue and he was living the gimmick. He was doing stuff in real life where he would interact with WWF people at certain uh, cross, you know, like, um, like conventions and things. He started really stirring the hornet's nest and giving this impression that Brian Pillman cannot be controlled. At the same time, he wanted a raise. But Eric Bischoff, who was now in charge, explained, unfortunately, you're not a big enough star right now for me to warrant the kind of raise that you want. Even if I think you deserve it. Right now, you're just, you're not there. So they concocted a plan where, okay, I'm going to release you from your WCW contract, but we have a handshake agreement that you're going to go out into the world and you'll do some shots for ECW. Maybe you even work with WWF for a little while. But the point is, when you're done with that run and establishing yourself as this box office attraction, the loose cannon, Brian Pillman, then I could bring you back to WCW and give you that fat raise that you want. But right now I just can't justify it. And then what happened was that while out and about in the world, he did go to ECW. He did go to WWF, but he signed like a real deal with WWF. And suddenly it doesn't look like he ever really had an intention of going back to WCW. Now, the sad truth is we'll never know if Brian Pillman was just playing Eric Bischoff and double-crossing Eric Bischoff, or if maybe when he, his deal with WWF expired, maybe he was all set to go back to Nitro and get that fat deal that Bischoff had promised him. But he died young. He died before he could ever do the part B to the plan. So he did the part A. He got the release. He went out there. He raised his public profile. But he never did come back and bring that extra notoriety and buzz with him to WCW, which is why to this day people mock Bischoff for letting him out of his contract. People mock Bischoff, like, see, Pillman worked you. You're such a mark, Eric. Bischoff, it, it, Pillman just wanted out of that contract and you let him do it. And now he's off living his dream and you look like a fool for letting him get away. So to this day, Bischoff has to deal with those suspicions and maybe those suspicions are true. Sadly, because Brian died so young, we'll never know if he was going to fully follow through on what he had promised Eric. But that brings us back to Cody. It makes me feel like, what if there's some of that here? What if Tony and Cody both agreed, okay, your current run here kind of has to come to a close. Right now, the, the well has been poisoned. So why don't you go somewhere and make a lot of noise and hell, if you can get on WWE programming, which is the enemy, AEW fans are going to hate you even more. So go there, but sign a short deal. 
maybe a year or two. Don't do the three-year deal. Do a year or two, go over there, have a strong run, and then you come back here as the biggest heel this place has ever seen because you were the father of the revolution. We all believed in you and you went over there. And now you come back here and, you know, like I could see a way where if Cody does return to AEW after a short run in WWE and it all kind of becomes clear that this was part of a grander plan, then Cody is a goddamn legend. (laughs) If that is how things play out here, then I will eat all my words. I will apologize. I will grovel at his feet and I will go, you know what, Cody, that was the most ballsy thing you've ever done. You know, leaving in 2016 was the first really ballsy thing you ever did. But leaving AEW, when you realize that the culture was, you know, that that the current uh, environment wasn't working for you so that you could go someplace become an even bigger star and then bring all that heat back to AEW. If that was the plan and you did it, you are a crazy son of a bitch and I'm going to admire you forever. Um, but you know, we're not going to know. We're not going to know for some time. We're not going to know for some time. And if the rumors are true, we are about a week and a half away from Cody Rhodes appearing on WWE Raw. And uh, we're just going to have to see how this plays out. But even the rumor bit honestly connects me to Pillman. Because remember, they were working everybody. They worked the wrestlers backstage. They worked the dirt sheet writers. You know, Pillman and Bischoff worked real hard to create this illusion that You know, they worked really hard to create this storyline that broke the fourth wall and made you question if this is real or not. They crafted that together. And if there's anything here going on with Tony and Cody where, yeah, they've been leaking misinformation and giving Meltzer false leads to create all this buzz and then he doesn't show up. And he really is just going to be back in AEW in the next few months and he just needed a break and he's going to come back with a reinvented heel character. I mean, I think that's a possibility too. And I guess the exciting part in all that is now I've got the wrestling fanboy and we can go on this ride together and see if Cody is a turncoat or a mad genius. So, uh... Thank you very much for listening to episode two of The Wrestling Fanboy. Please take a little time to leave me a five-star review and write me some kind words. And if you're on any wrestling forums or Reddits or Facebook groups or tweet chains, just let them know about this here show. Because as I said at the start, Your word of mouth, what you say and do after listening to this show is going to decide how big it gets and where it goes from here. So thank you. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.